Welcome to Luke 21 Radio, a broadcast explaining biblical prophecy in the tradition of St. Augustine. And now, from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Luke 21 Radio as we continue our studies in the book of Daniel. And today we're looking at an expansion of what we've already covered in Daniel chapter 2 and 3, and we're calling this episode Antichrist Empires, Empires Plural. You're probably aware that at the very end of time before Christ's second coming, there will be the ultimate Antichrist, the final Antichrist, setting up a worldwide empire. But there are many Antichrist figures and prefiguring the last Antichrist that appear through history. And we want to be aware of that. We're going to talk about it today, but first I want to remind you that as soon as we're done with the prophet Daniel, we'd like to take some of your questions that you have on biblical prophecy. And if you have a question on prophecy, what the catechism teaches about biblical prophecy or the church fathers, just send me an email to askthehost at gmail.com And the only rule is your question about biblical prophecy has to be 100 words or less. And again, that email address is askthehost at gmail.com. Let's go right to the prophet Daniel, and we're looking at chapter 2 and chapter 3 by way of review. There's a connection here. In Daniel 2, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar, a worldwide ruler of an empire, an empire that actually ruled over other lesser kingdoms, he had a dream of a succession of four world empires. And we saw that was Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then followed by a coalition of 10 nations and finally, the eternal kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't explicitly say, but it's rather obvious when we switch from Daniel 2 to Daniel 3, we can see that Nebuchadnezzar really didn't like the dream and its interpretation that Daniel so faithfully gave, because in the dream, the head of gold, you would think he'd be happy with that, he would be the first world empire. No, he wanted to be the first and only world empire. So in Daniel 3, he makes an image, but the image isn't just a head of gold. The whole image is of gold. The whole image is representing the kingdom of Babylon, and of course, with Nebuchadnezzar, its head. In other words, he wanted an eternal, lasting kingdom. Now, this is important because this isn't just ancient history. One way empires attempt cohesion or unity, and this is necessary for any kind of lengthy duration of an empire, is to have a state religion as the unifying glue of the various peoples under the empire's rule. So, when you have a state religion basically deifying the state, very often the emperor is also worshipped as divine. Now, I want to repeat and expand on something that I said in our last episode. I said, please be aware that we are not just discussing ancient history. This isn't just BC stuff. 
the satanic impulse behind idolatrous state religion pervades much of history all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we can expect the same root, the impulse, so to speak, that's fueling the desire for world empire has not gone away. And I want to give you a hint on how this works. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, I pointed out something. It's rather subtle, but it's kind of like one of those things if you're watching a British uh, cop show, so to speak, a detective show. The American shows, they're blasting with guns and blowing up cars and stuff. But, you know, the British shows are a lot more subtle. You have to kind of pay a lot of attention because you're given hints all the way through, but you may not put it together unless you're really paying attention. Well, that's how Daniel is working here. Because in the second verse of Daniel, as the book opens in chapter 1, he says that Nebuchadnezzar brought the things from the Jerusalem temple to the land of Shinar. Now, the land of Shinar was another way of saying the land of Babylon. Why didn't he say he brought him to Babylon? Because that's really, he was the king of the first world empire, Babylon. Well, because Shinar should trigger the memory. And remember, this was written to people who knew their Old Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 11, this is the chapter of the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11 verse 2, it says, as men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said, come, let us build us ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. This, at the very origin of human history, after the flood, you see this satanic impulse to basically deify mankind, defy God's commands, and if you've seen those old pictures of the Tower of Babel where it you know, kind of goes increasingly up, this is the idea ascending to the top, man and particularly its leaders become divine. Well, this was happening in the land of Shinar. And then you move forward in history and you have the empire of Babylon, in the land of Shinar. This is supposed to like trigger things. This is nothing new. This is the same impulse, except you're moving through history. Now, here's a second one from Daniel chapter 3. Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar wants to set up his idolatrous image, which causes the three companions of Daniel to be thrown into the fiery furnace and all that, and they're preserved by God. But it says in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Let me reread that same verse from Genesis 11. As men migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Later, the land of Shinar becomes Babylon. And where they make their idolatrous building, so to speak, that God had to intervene and stop, well, 
in a similar, the providence of Babylon, the same at least general area, a plain in the land of Shinar is where all of this takes place in Daniel chapter 3. The point I am making is that there's a continuing impulse for this. And it's only because perhaps our senses are dull that we don't see these type of things erupting. Moving forward to another entire episode, but under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is going to come in the future, a, a ruler who is attempting to create a unified empire. And it says in 1 Maccabees chapter 1 and verse 41, the king wrote his whole kingdom for the purpose that all should be one people to hold a human-fueled, satanically-fueled kingdom together, you need to have an imposed unity. And so we find out that Antiochus Epiphanes basically forbade the Jews to practice their religion, and they had to practice his kingdom religion, because a kingdom with one deifying himself needs a religion to unify the peoples. And so it happened way back uh, in the days right after the flood. It happened in the kingdom of Babylon. It happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. And everybody wondering, well, what was the immediate context of the book of Revelation? And if you were with me as we went through, we, we saw that the book of Revelation definitely has an historical context as well as a future aspect. But what's the historical context? It's the exact same thing that I've just mentioned. It's about a galactic conflict between Caesar, the king, the emperor, claiming divinity and demanding worship versus King Jesus receiving worship. That's the book of Revelation in a nutshell with a lot of other details left out, but that's the main point. And so Revelation in a sense, is about this cosmic war over the first commandment. God says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that's what's going on in Revelation. That's what's going on under Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what's going on in King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 and 3. And that's what was going on way back in Genesis 11. Now, here's the big question. Is all of this just ancient history repeating itself, or could there be any kind of impulse for this same world empire even in the modern world? Well, President Bush Sr. said in 1991, before the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, he said, quote, the Gulf crisis has to do with a new world order. What? What does the Gulf crisis have to do with a new world order? And that world order is going to be enhanced if this newly activated peacekeeping function of the United Nations proves to be effective. What is this talking about? President of the United States talking about our involvement in the Middle East is going to lead to a new world order? What's that? Well, somebody who's probably involved in the United States relations to the rest of the world in my lifetime more than anyone I can think of is Henry Kissinger, our former Secretary of State. And in 2014, 
He wrote a very lengthy book, about 420 pages worth, of a book entitled World Order. And he traces the whole history of world order in very uh, detailed fashion. And he gets to the end and says, really, we need a world order and we're going to go to regional governments. And I'm not talking about a region of the United States, but United States belonging to a larger region, say like North and South America, that will eventually merge into a world government. And then you probably didn't even hear about this, but ever since 2013, there's been an annual world government summit. Yes. And it's not very reported, at least not very well in the news. Um, For instance, in the 2019 meeting, celebrity Harrison Ford denounced the idea of nationalism. Hmm. How about that? I liked his movies, but I don't like his political views. Uh, There uh, at the World Government Summit in Dubai, head of the International Monetary Fund, head of UNICEF, president of U.S. General Assembly, and there was Columbia professor, pro-abortion professor, and U.N. advisor Jeffrey Sachs, who's one of the world's foremost proponents of population control. He also co-hosted the conference at the Vatican on climate change, and his view is that abortion is a great way to reduce human population. And there were media partners with the World Government Summit, New York Times, CNN, Bloomberg, CNBC, and guess who gave the opening address? Pope Francis. Now you say Americans will never fall for giving up national sovereignty, but what if there was a catastrophic financial collapse and you had a decision to make? Lose your home? or lose your national sovereignty? And what if there was a national exchange and we needed some kind of peace plan and somebody showed up on the horizon? That's exactly what the catechism predicts in section 675, that before Christ's second coming, we're gonna go through a final trial that's gonna result in a one world leader, the Antichrist. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 147 of Luke 21 Radio. Thank you.